0: Oh, is this man Antiochus Epiphanes or someone else and he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers verse 37 or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god for he will magnify himself above them all but Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses. Now, your Bible says God of gods. A God of fortresses. A God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures, And he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him, and he will cause them to rule over the many, and will parcel out land for a price. And at the end time, the king of the south, now get this, the king of the south will collide with him. You see, this is someone who is different from the king of the north, and the King of the South that we've been discussing. This is important in the interpretation of this passage. At the time of the end, the King of the South will collide with him, and the King of the North, both of them are gonna be against this individual, will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through the blitz ring, you know, of Germany, last world war. He will also enter the beautiful land. That beautiful land is what? We're in chapter 11, verse 30, 41. The beautiful land, of course, is Palestine. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. It seems that they're gonna be separated for special condemnation of God. You remember who these people were, Moab and Ammon. You know, those are the two people that uh, came from the incest of Lot and his two daughters. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyan and Ethiopian will follow at his heel. Or who is this man? But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate them. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas, the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, or the Sea of Galilee, and the beautiful Holy Mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time and at the time your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. See, the elect remnant of Israel is going to be saved from this terrible hour and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt the most important passage uh, stating the time the time when old testament saints will be raised see Not at the rapture, not at the rapture, well, we'll see, but just before the millennium, after the tribulation. This is the most important, the clearest passage in Scripture. It isn't the only one, but the clearest. that says that the Israel Old Testament saints will not be raised with New Testament saints at the rapture. And those who have insight will shine brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever. God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Shall we pray? Our fathers, we come before thee, Lord, this morning. We realize. We're dealing with a passage that's prophetic. A passage that's still, even from our vantage point, 2,500 years from Daniel is still in the future. Lord, there are many things that are intentionally vague, ambiguous, keep our curiosity, to keep us studying, to keep us reading, to strengthen our faith and trust in you. But Lord, help us this morning as we seek to study this passage to get some concept of what you have revealed to us is this man. This willful king, who is going to oppose all that is called God and set himself up as God, but only for a time, that he'd be destroyed with the glorious second coming of thy son, with the brightness that far exceeds that of the sun. Lord, Keep us from that day, we pray. Keep us loyal to thyself. Bless each one who is here this morning, we pray. Bless us as we study and meditate thy word. Oh, how we thank thee that in these days of difficulty and this uncertainty, Lord, what we see that is destined, decreed for this world and the future, that there's still a sovereign God and that all is in the palm of his hand in absolute control bless us as we study and meditate upon this passage my name we ask him amen now follow just along with me Uh, a minute Remember that we're in this uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th chapter of the book of Daniel. And these three chapters, these three chapters form one unit. These three chapters form one unit. We saw how that in chapter 10, how that in chapter 10, we have the prologue, we have the preparation. Remember that prayer of Daniel and uh, how that the answer of that prayer was hindered uh, by the prince of Persia. And how that uh, Michael came to help the angel to bring the answer to Daniel. And and show Daniel Daniel what was happening in the heavens. In this invisible world above us. A world populated with angels. Good angels. Evil angels. Angels governed and dominated by Satan. Angels governed and dominated by Christ. And they are clashing. The opposition that the people of Israel were going to receive and were receiving in Palestine, the had returned, to remember, and how uh, that uh, Persia, had issued a decree stopping the building of the temple. But that issue, that decree from the king of Persia was just a reflection of the opposition of the prince of Persia. Not a person, not an individual, not a human being, but an angel, an instrument of Satan. Was fighting against Michael, and that conflict in the air was just uh, overflowing. The problem here upon the earth, the persecution of the Persians and against the Jews, was just an extension of this angelic war. And then he says, after Persia's coming, Greece. So this whole chapter now, uh, eleven. Is an extended revelation, and he says that this revelation is true. This is decreed. This is what's going to happen. Just as Persia was opposing Israel, so Greece was going to oppose Israel. So, chapter 11 deals with this. Then, when you come to chapter 12, you remember in the first few verses of chapter 12, It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard. So it's all one. Chapters 10, 11, and 12. We saw how the chapter 11 was divided. Uh, Quite easily, verse 2 deals with Persia. Verse 2 deals with Persia. Because we're explaining, we're developing... This time, we're developing this time between Daniel and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Between Daniel is what we call more or less the 400 silent years. This whole prophecy now is describing this particular period. It was a time when heavens didn't open. It was a time when God didn't uh, speak to Israel. There was no Old Testament prophet. There was no Old Testament book written during this period of time. But you have this great chapter 11 of Daniel that still shows, still proves that God is sovereign, God is protecting the people. And although there is no book written, heavens don't open, nevertheless, God has foreseen this whole period of time. And it was interesting that in the third century A.D., Porphyru, or sometimes you see it Porphyra, a pagan, a pagan historian and philosopher, saw that chapter eleven identifies itself with the history of, of the uh, the history of this period of time. The history divided primarily between the, the two, Egypt and Syria. Egypt the king of the south, Syria the king of the north, and how that they fought for the control and dominion of Palestine. Because Syria needed Palestine as a buffer against Egypt, Egypt needed Palestine as a buffer against Syria because these were the two dominant powers, and it's continuing right straight through to 1979. You have exactly the same problem today. Uh, and poor little Israel is right in the a shuttlecock, just a, a little football ping-pong ball right in the middle, and it's being kicked both ways. And it is today. And it is today. but. He shows, he gives you this this chapter to encourage and to strengthen the Jews during this whole period of time. Now, with chapter 11, verse 3 and 4, you see verse 2 deals with Persia. Verse 2 deals with Persia. It was mostly all past. It said the three kings are going to come, then the fourth. That fourth king is Xerxes. The fourth king is Xerxes, the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. Now, starting with verse 3, you have that uh, uh, Greece, and it says that this power is going to come. Now you remember that this is just an amplification and enlargement of chapter 8. You remember chapter 8 dealt with the ram and the he-goat. Now he's developing a little bit more. He's filling in the details. This is a principle. You'll see this all through your study of the Bible. They, they like to state a fact very briefly, succinctly, and then a little bit later on they amplify it. You've seen this in chapter 2, you saw it in chapter 7. Uh, and uh, here again, it's uh, doing this all through this book of Daniel. And then it mentions that there was going to be a great king. and that he's going to die. Of course, that great king is Alexander the Great, and the, his whole empire, the whole known civilized world around the Mediterranean, down into India, well, was divided not to anybody in his family, but among his four generals, among his four generals. Now, the two that we're interested in is, uh, Ptolemy, Ptolemy of Egypt, Ptolemy of Egypt. Now, after verse 4, beginning with verse 5 and on, you have the king of the south and the king of the north. The king of the south is the uh, dynasty of the Ptolemies of Egypt. The dynasty of the Ptolemies of Egypt. The king of the north is uh, the dynasty of the Seleucids or Seleucids. Seleucus. Uh, it's been mentioned in various ways, but it's same people. Uh, and there he's the king of the north. He starts out with Antiochus I and Ptolemy the uh, first. And so that continues now, that continues through verse 20. This conflict, this conflict between the north and the south. Now, remember that there are gaps all through this description. Daniel, and this is all prophecy now, this all came to pass two or three hundred years after the death of Daniel. This is the whole issue. See, this is the reason why critics today deny the early date of Daniel. The early date of Daniel. And uh, I was just reading in that journal of... uh, The Evangelical Theological Society, that uh, the discovery of Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, were dated much earlier than Antiochus, much earlier than 165. And so it confirms, these Dead Sea Scrolls confirm the early date, or the 500 dates, the 6th century B.C. date for Daniel because Daniel was a book that seemed to be specially cherished in these uh, uh, Qumran uh, settlement, And here they have a, a, a copy of it that is much earlier than Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. So it confirms, at least, the early date. I wouldn't say absolutely establishes it, but it does. And so it really has shaken up. All these modernists, all these critics that say it was impossible for Daniel to write this book because these chapters, verse 11, chapter 11 is history. And Daniel couldn't possibly, Daniel couldn't possibly have foreseen all of this with such detail. He must, it must be history and not prophecy. Now, of course, if you have problems with us, you can see the cogency of this argument. Well, but if you believe in a sovereign God, an almighty God, in a miracle-working God, well, there is no problem in recognizing the uh, miracle in word, the prophecy. But Daniel wasn't intended to write in detail all of this. He's just interested in these cardinal, principal events. See, it's not a detailed history but just the principal events that uh, between these powers and these powers and Israel. Beginning at verse 21, beginning at verse 21, you have the history of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. And in his place, I believe some of your Bibles say a vile person. Uh, The Bible I'm using, New American Standard says a despicable person. Now from 21 to 35, he's dealing, he's dealing with Antiochus Epiphany. Egypt had become weak politically, militarily, and so that Syria had become strong politically and militarily. and. Syria had taken, had conquered Egypt. So when it conquered and defeated Egypt, then Palestine fell into the hands of Syria. Palestine fell into the hands of Syria. Syria made an attack on Egypt to completely destroy Egypt. It was thwarted, as we saw in the last few verses uh, last Friday, it was thwarted by ships from Khidim. Kittim is Cyprus, Kittim is Cyprus. The Roman government didn't want Syria to become too strong in the Middle East. Rome was just becoming a power to be reckoned with. So it sent an army from Cyprus down to Egypt and destroyed uh, uh, Antiochus. Antiochus going back to Syria through Palestine Uh, vetted his spleen, vetted his spleen against the Jews. He hated the Jews. And he said this Jewish uh, religion, this Jewish people must be destroyed. And so when he went through, he put an, an image of the God of Zeus in the temple. Back in Palestine, back in Jerusalem, he sacrificed a pig on the brazen altar and sprinkled the blood through all the furniture of the temple, thus desecrating, thus desecrating the temple and destroying the service. Then he issued a decree, he issued an edict saying that the Jews could not worship their God. They had to start integrate with the uh, Arabs, with the people, with the Syrians, and so they would cease their distinctiveness. Now this is given to us, uh, follow me here, this is given to us in verse 31 to 35. And forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. See, and everyone admits that this was Antiochus about, about 165, about 165 B.C. See, Daniel was around 500, but, and here you see Antiochus Epiphanes. It's almost everyone believes that this man here, this vile person, this despicable person, that they're describing, who comes and desecrates the sanctuary, was Antiochus Epiphany, uh, and then immediately after him, you would remember, there was a Maccabean rebellion, a few years of independence, until that broke down, and they called Rome in at 63 B.C., and by smooth words, verse 32, he will turn to godliness. Those who act wickedly toward the covenant of thy people, who know their God will display strength and take action, and those who have insight among the people, those who understand what Antiochus was doing, will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword, by the flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. Now, when they fall, they will be granted little help. Verse 35, and some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure, until the end time, because it shall come at the appointed time. So now at the end, he says, he gives you the explanation of why, why God was permitting Antiochus to come in. It was through persecution he was going to purge Israel. Now that's a key. This is extremely important uh, that all of this time now uh, because there was going to be opposition between Gentiles and Jews and God was sovereign and permitting this persecution was permitting Antiochus to come in and desecrate the sanctuary. And this was going to continue to when? get that, unto the end time. So there's an indication in the narrative itself, indication in the narrative itself, that this goes beyond, this goes beyond the time of Antiochus Epiphany. Now, you who have just the ordinary Bibles without uh, paragraph divisions and subject headings, verse 36 follows immediately, verse 35, but who is this willful person? of chapter 36, of verse 36, then the king, then when? Look at verse 35. He says that this is going to continue. The Michael is going to war against the prince of, of Persia, against the prince of Greece. There is going to be a clashing of Gentile and, uh, and Jewish forces and this is under the sovereign plan and decree of God, and it's to purge Israel. It's to uh, persecute Israel. It's to bring Israel into unto repentance, and this is going to continue to the end time. And now, from our vantage point of 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus Christ 2,500 years from the time of of Daniel, how true this is. There has been no lasting peace in Palestine, and there isn't today. The peace that they're enjoying is a very tenuous peace. This is going to continue. Uh, And he says now, until the end time, then the king. Who is this king? What's the then? I take it that this then is dealing, is dealing with, as we saw last time, the times of the Gentile. It's dealing with that end. It's dealing with these events immediately preceding, preceding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have Daniel looking here. Antiochus Epiphanes comes in about here. But then you have the Lord Jesus Christ coming, offering the kingdom. The Jews reject him and crucify him. Then you have this whole mystery, the whole church age, 1979 years. Then you have, as you saw in Daniel 9 and previously, you're this tribulation, this tribulation a period of seven years, the 70th week of Daniel 9. Then you have Christ coming and to establish his kingdom. And this is the times, this is the times of the Gentiles. You remember the time of the Gentiles began back here when God delivered Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in 606 and it's continuing right up to this, and so we're dealing now with this period of time. In other words, that there is a gap between between what Daniel saw. Daniel saw enlightened and capacitated by the Spirit of God, he saw this history just in outline up to Antiochus Epiphanes, to verse 35. Between verse 35 and verse 36, the whole present age is. And you get the indication of it right in the text, as we'll see. Well, he says, until the time of the end. Then, so we're dealing with the in- end time. We're dealing with this period of, uh, of indignation. We're dealing with what we call the tribulation, as we mentioned, as we saw in the early uh, verses of chapter 12. Now, you have the cross and the whole church age, and then you have verses 36 to 45. So put in your Bibles there, uh, and uh, it's interesting, uh, as we'll see, that almost all commentators, Almost all commentators, even those of liberals, recognize that the first uh, 35 up to verse 35 is history. It's past. It's fulfilled. From 35 on, from 36 on, that is prophecy. And many uh, the liberal commentators seeing this uh, say uh, Daniel Goof. Daniel was living at this time of Antiochus Epiphanies. Then he tried to predict on his own. He tried to prophesy something on his own, and he absolutely goofed because nothing. Everyone recognizes that from 36 on, there has nothing happened yet that corresponds to these events. And this is such vivid contrast with the verse 35 verses where you you can have precise historic events. I want to give three or four reasons why why we believe that there is this interval. This gap, this parenthesis between verse 35 and verse 36. Now... If you do have problems with this, and I I I can understand how you could easily, especially if you're not if you've not been schooled and taught in dispensational truth. And dispensational principles of hermeneutics. But there is a principle that happens all the time in Scripture. You take, for example, David. David describes an experience that was peculiar to him, and this experience that was peculiar to him, you take it in Psalms 23, 24, 22, uh, that refer to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. These events that refer to him in historic time, and there were real events. Go beyond, go beyond his time and his person and look forward to Christ. Look forward to Christ. Jesus Christ, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, one of the things that makes that great Olivet Discourse, 24 or 25 of Matthew, so confusing, is because one time, one time, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70, in 70 by Titus, and in another time, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that's still in the future when Christ comes the second time. And between those two, you have this whole period of almost 2,000 years at the present time. This, there's a, a basic rule that God uses or better, a passage often has a near and partial fulfillment, a near and partial fulfillment. Then it has a remote and full, a remote and full fulfillment because that this willful king of of verse 36, this willful king of verse 36 you would take it that it's exactly the same, the same as this vile person or this despicable person of verse 21. But as you read through this, as you read through this, you realize that what is said of this person was not and could not have been said in the full sense of the term. If you're going to take the scripture in its natural Uh, literal interpretation, it's normal, natural interpretation, you must realize that what is said here, what is said here of uh, this man, it was not said at any time of Antiochus Epiphanes, although Antiochus Epiphanes was an antitype of the Lord, uh, of the Antichrist. Who is this person? As we go through here, we'll see that uh, this individual, this willful king, was not Antiochus, but was the Antichrist. Daniel foresaw Epiphanes, and Epiphanes was just a, a type of this one who was to come, who is to be destroyed by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And between these two, between these two, is the whole present age. Now we've seen this gap, the same gap, not just a gap, but the same gap elsewhere in Scripture. You remember when you were in chapter 9 with uh, Dr. Crichton, verses uh, 26 and 27, 25, 26, and 27. You had between those verses the whole present age. You remember how it said that uh, 69 weeks are finished here? Then what? Then will be the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the destruction of Jerusalem, and wars and rumors of wars. Chapter verse 27 says, And the prince that shall come, and the prince that shall come, shall make a covenant with Israel for one week. And between, verse 26 you have exactly the same interval. This prince that shall come is the same, is the same as this vile, this willful king of verse 36. Uh, So this isn't unique. This isn't uh, peculiar. Uh, And, oh, my, I could go and show how much of this. Oh, you take uh, Isaiah 9, 6. Isaiah 9, 6. A son shall be given, no, a son given, a child shall be born, and what? The government shall be upon his shoulders. A son given, a child born, that was when? That was Christ's first coming. A government shall be upon his shoulders, that's what? The second coming. Between, right in one verse, you don't see it at all, but it's there. It's a gap of the whole present age. This is the reason why this whole church age is a mystery. The whole church age is a sacred secret. Daniel foresaw this, and he foresaw this. Isaiah foresaw this, and he foresaw that, but he didn't see what was in between. That had to be that way so that the Lord Jesus Christ could make a bona fide presentation of the kingdom to Israel. So they would be absolutely free to either reject or accept Christ as the Messiah, as the king, and establish the kingdom. It couldn't possibly be foreseen. It couldn't possibly be done. Otherwise, when Christ offered the kingdom, it wouldn't be a bona fide offer because it was already a closed issue that they were going to reject. Now, some of you are taking notes. Let's look in now. I'm going to spend the rest of the time um, in mentioning three or four reasons, four or five, why we believe, why we believe that there is a gap between 36 and 37, I mean 35 and 36. And as we give these reasons, it'll give us an opportunity to explain the principal truths, the principal truths of this section. And that's the reason I do it. First, reasons for believing that there is an interval, a gap, a parenthesis, hiatus between verses 35 and 36. I've already given you one, that it's a principle in Scripture. Uh, This gap, we've seen it. This isn't a unique. There are many other illustrations in Scripture. Isaiah 9, 6, Daniel 9, 25 to 27, the same gap, same time is, is indicated. It's a principle of Scripture to give a partial fulfillment, a near partial, and then a remote, complete fulfillment. This is the way God works. You have many, many. It happens with the city of Jerusalem. It happens with David. Now, one, Hebrew scholars admit, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but Hebrew scholars Affirm that there's a natural break, a linguistic break between verses 35 and 36. There's a change as far as style and form is concerned. There's a literary break between verses 35 and 36. Second, all scholars, ever since Jerome and I, Even those that are ah mills, like young, all of them admit that from verse 36 on is not history. 36 on is prophecy. Now, this is important because of the unanimity. No matter what your millennial view may be, they recognize that verse 36 is not history. Verse 36 and on is prophecy third. This willful king, this willful king is a new element. We tried to bring that out when we were reading. In verse 30, it says that the king of the south and the king of the north are going to attack him so that he is not one of the kings of the south. He isn't one of the kings of the north. That same distinction is going to be Syria and Egypt, just like it is today, just like it is today. But this one is going to be separate and distinct from either one. Now, what does it say about this king? This is the reason that leads me, confirms uh, me, that uh, it was not Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes didn't do this. Antiochus Epiphanes was an analogy, was a type, the same spirit that was in Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, uh, a selfish, prideful, individual, an independent, a man who hated God, hated the people of God, that's all, hated the Word of God, that's all very true, but he didn't do in the extreme, what this willful king is going to do. Now, follow me. The Bible's open. Verse 36. This man is going to be and have certain supremacy. Now, look at what it says. Verse 36. He will exalt and magnify what? Himself above every God. That wasn't true of Antiochus. And he will speak monstrous things. You who have the authorized version says uh, marvelous things, horrible things. We don't have time, but put in the margin or put in your notes, Second Thessalonians two, Second Thessalonians two, two to seven. I wanted to pick that up. You remember that that man, that son of perdition, that lawless one, uh, is going to speak great things against God. And so this one here, he's going to do as he pleases. He's going to do as he pleases. He wants to call himself God. He wants to be worshipped as God. Now, who is the one that really wants to be worshipped as God, outside of the true God? It's Satan and his henchmen. You remember in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, Uh, That description there of of Satan with uh, Lucifer, he says, I will arise, I will be like God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. You remember at the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, you bow down uh, and worship me and I'll give you this world. He wants to be worshipped, and this is the characteristic of this individual. The same as the lawless one of 2 Thessalonians 2, I take it that he's the first beast of Revelation 13, he's the first beast of Revelation 13, he's what we call the anti-Christ, he's what we call the anti-Christ. And everything that goes, everything that is said here, I think uh, will confirm this. Just exactly as, um, as Antiochus, you remember, just exactly as Antiochus put the image of Zeus into the temple. And he desecrated the temple and said, no, you Jews, you have to do, have to dance as I play. You Jews have to obey us Syrians. Uh, just so, this one is going to put, You remember, the second beast of Revelation 13 puts an image of the first beast and commands everyone to worship that beast. And here's exactly the same thing with respect to this individual. He's, now, what else does he say about it? And he'll speak monstrous things against God. He'll speak horrible things against God. That there is no God. And this is exactly what people are saying today, that God's dead. He is that doesn't have any sovereignty. But that he isn't a kind and just and loving and God. Uh, I am. I am God. Now, until we see now that his power is limited until the indignation is finished. This indignation is this time, in a general sense, this whole time of the times of the Gentiles. In a strict and narrower sense, it's this tribulation period. So he's going to, it marks it as the time of the end. This time of the indignation, this time when Christ will come, this time when there will be a resurrection of the Jews, chapter 12. So it places it now at a definite time, and that he will come to an end. You remember Second uh, Thessalonians 2 says that when Christ comes with the brightness of his glory, he's going to destroy, he's going to destroy this lawless one. And here... In Daniel, he sees exactly the same incident. Now, if he speaks horrible things against God and denies that there is a God and puts himself up as God and demands the worship of people, who is his God? Verse 37. And he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers now this seems to indicate this seems to indicate that he's going to be a Jew but he's going to be a reprobate Jew he's going to be an infidel Jew he's not going to have any respect for the gods of his fathers that is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob The true and living God, he has no respect for him. Now, he goes on. Or for the desire of woman. Or for the desire of woman. Now, what does this indicate? the desire of women all through the old testament is a, a phrase based upon genesis 3:15 that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent every faithful jewish maiden desired and longed to be the mother of the messiah the mother of the liberator the mother of Christ. And so what is said here, that this individual is going to be an apostate Jew, he isn't going to respect the true God of the Jewish people, and he is also going to be opposed to the person of Christ. Also opposed to the person of Christ because he has no respect for the desire of women. What was the desire of women? The desire of of women was to be the mother of the liberator, the mother of Christ, the mother of the Messiah. So he's going to oppose both God and his son. Both God and his son. In 1 John 2.2, Put this down there. First John 2.2. 2. John says, who is the liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And so this individual is denying both God and the Son. Oh, I had hoped to take some time and go turn with you to Psalm 2. You remember in the beginning of Psalm 2 it says, Why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? They hate both God and his Son. They hate both God and his Son. This is characteristic, friends. This is characteristic of Satan and his whole program here. Not only are they against God, but they're also against his son. And so this, labels this one as the Antichrist. This is not, in any true natural sense, referred to Antiochus. This is someone else. This is the Antichrist. This is the lawless one of 2 Thessalonians 2, the first beast of Revelation 13, uh, that prince that makes the covenant with Israel for one week. This is that individual that Daniel foresees at the end time. Now, verse uh, 38, but instead... He will honor a God of fortresses. Who is his God? An apostate Jew, he doesn't believe in the true Jewish God, nor in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, what will be. His God is going to be war. His God is going to be victory. His God is going to be contention, rivalry, war, suffering destruction, and death. Uh, And you see this today, friends. My, what country is causing trouble in the Far East, Middle East, South America, everywhere you are, just thrives on war, thrives on white wars, cold wars, hot wars. Just keep the kettle boiling. Look at what's happening in Iran. Where's the money coming from? Where are the arms coming from? Where are the tanks coming from? See, God. Some people have a God of sex. Sometimes it's pleasure. Sometimes it's power. Sometimes it's prestige. This individual is going to be war. This is where. The world is going to It'll fall into the hands of one who will deny all true God, and his God will be a God of fortresses, a God of war, God of conflict, a God of destruction and death, suffering and bloodshed. That's this individual. But remember that his time is limited and he shall take action against the strongest fortress. And with the help of a foreign god, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. You see, he's the one that demands that everyone has the sign of 666 on the forehead or on the hand. Uh, An interesting thing uh, with these... uh, Computers that we have today, this would be so easy to do. Right? And it wouldn't necessarily be visible. could uh, be placed there just under the skin. It be placed uh, there and it would be so easily read. Uh, and those that do not have that mark don't buy or sell. No. And at any time, verse 40. The king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north. See, so this individual is neither one or the other, and they'll have great horsemen. I'm in verse 40, with uh, many ships, and he will enter countries. He shall also enter the beautiful land. He's coming there to Palestine. But these will be rescued, such as Edom. Then he will stretch his hand, against other countries, but he will gain control over hidden treasures of gold. But, verse 44, rumors from the east and from the north shall disturb him. Who are? What is this? You turn to this chapter 16 of the book of Revelation, verses 16 and 17, and you remember how that there will be three demons, Come out of the abyss, and these demons will encourage, encourage Gentile nations to gather their armies to Palestine. You remember how that the river Euphrates will dry up, and two hundred million from China and Japan from the Far East will direct their armies into the land of Palestine. Russia will be there. And it's interesting, the conflict and the rivalry between uh, Russia and China, even today. This is exactly what Daniel saw, exactly what Daniel saw 500 years before Christ. That these would all come, and these m- make up that great battle of what we call Armageddon. That's great battle of being... In the plain start, in the plain of Israel, and come to its climax in the city of Jerusalem. They have one purpose, one goal in mind, and that is to destroy Israel, to completely push Israel into the Mediterranean Sea, to just kill every Jew. And it looks like they're going to be successful. But just at the time when they feel that victory is in their grasp, then the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, chapter 19 of the book of Revelation will come. He'll destroy this Antichrist, cast Satan, and bind him, and destroy those arms that blood will flow in Jerusalem and in that whole land says even up to the horse's bride. Yes, here's one who opposes God. But he's for a limited time until the end of the indignation until Christ comes In his glory. The next reason why, not a time to tarry here, but the next reason is because of the whole scope of this prophecy. I've tried to emphasize the whole scope of this prophecy that we're dealing with the time of the indignation. We're dealing with the end time that this prophecy is for many days, it's clear then that this goes beyond the time of Antiochus Epiphany. Now, look at verse 12. Look at chapter 12. Look at the whole context here. Because it's unfortunate there's a chapter division between 11 and 12. Verse uh, Chapter 12 fits right on to chapter 11 and should not have any Division. Now, at that time, at the, what time? At that time, when when uh, this willful king gathers, and and the king of the north and the king of the south fight against him, Egypt and Syria, Syria backed by uh, Russia, as it is today, huh, is going to fight against this individual, this Roman prince, this Antichrist, this one who defies all God and wants to be worshiped. Now, at that time, Michael comes. You see, this is what's the whole secret, why he's defeated. See, it's a continuation of what we saw earlier. And there will be a time of distress. What is that time of distress? Chapter uh, 12, verse one, that's the tribulation. Never occurred since there was a nation. Oh, Israel has been persecuted. Israel has been hated and discriminated against. Yes, it has, like we saw in Germany, like we see in, in Russia, that's true. But this is going to be unique, unique in intensity, unique in extent. There you saw it just in Russia, there you saw it just in Germany. Now this is going to be worldwide, it's going to be official, it's going to be a federal thing, not individual, not just groups. But this is going to be a federal, political thing, a racial hatred of the Jews. Everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting. Now there is why we call, say, that the Jews will be resurrected. The Jews will be resurrected here. Not at the rapture. See, Christ comes in the air. Christ comes in the air, in the rapture here. The church, the living saints will be translated here. The dead, Old Testament saints, from Pentecost on will be resurrected here. See? But here, chapter 12, says that there's going to be this period of distress, this period of indignation, this end time, that this Antichrist is going to be here such as there has never been. Now, he said the whole purpose of this was to purge Israel, to separate the apostates from the true Israel. It was to, This resistance was to bring humility, repentance, and faith on the part of Israel. It happened back here with Antiochus. It's going to be in a much more intense uh, here. And then Christ comes. Then Christ comes and the resurrection of all the Old Testament saints.